You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell. This is episode 88 where times are a-changing. It's become obvious to us all that our careers won't end the way they began. Employment arrangements are shifting drastically. We're in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution. You can only imagine how different our children's working lives will be from ours. It's mind-blowing. For some, it's scary. For others, incredibly exciting. Most of us, though, sit somewhere in between looking for information that will help us better understand what it all means and how we should navigate it. My guest in this episode is here to do just that. Michelle Gibbings spends a lot of time thinking about how to make more of our careers. In our first chat, back in 2016, episode 43, Michelle and I talked about stepping up your career, moving from technical expert to leader. In this chat, Michelle shares with us her thoughts about the way careers are changing. But most importantly, she talks about the things we can do to prepare ourselves for those changes so we don't just survive in the shifting sands, but thrive instead. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle Gibbings. Michelle Gibbings, welcome back to the Team Guru Podcast. Hey, David. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Michelle, you are the second person that I have had returned to the podcast, so it's very nice to have you back. Oh, I've taken it as an honour that <laughs> I'm one of the only one of two that's been invited back. Yeah, and, and under the same circumstances as well, you you wrote a book back in, you and I spoke in September of 2016 when you wrote your first book. And now that you've written your second book, here we are again. So under the same circumstances, your second book is called Career Leap. And it talks all about the fact that the landscape of work, the landscape of our career is changing enormously. And and you paint a very nice picture of the scale of that change and what it means for us individually. We're going to spend the bulk of this conversation tonight talking about what it means for you and I, for people who are already in their career people who are going to have to manoeuvre through this this very much changing landscape, as I said. But I want to start with the two extremes. You mentioned early in your book, just very briefly, your dad. And uh, I want to talk about the difference that your dad experienced in his career compared to my oldest son, who is about to turn five. When you think about those two experiences, Michelle, how different are their working lives going to be? Well, when you consider that there's almost a 75-year age gap, (laughs) it's going to be, I mean, it's incredibly significant. The stats are that for people coming through, you know, schooling days now, they're going to have a minimum five different careers and 17 different employers, whereas my dad, when he finished university, he got a job at the university that he had studied at as an economist and a a lecturer. And he pretty much did that through his whole career. 
And so, you know, he had a few things that he did on the side as extra, but his predominant career was in the one location for the entire time. And if I even just look at my own career, I've had at least three to four career changes and I've worked for eight different companies. So my son can expect to have five different careers. So that's not jobs. We're talking 17 jobs. But just in terms of an actual career, changing his profession, changing his identity as a professional five times through his career. Absolutely. And I think you've picked up on a really good point when you use the word identity. And I love that because I don't think people realize how much of their identity and how they see themselves and how other people see them is tied up in their career. And so when you're changing careers, understanding how your identity is going to shift is absolutely critical. Now, is there any chance that my son entering the workforce in 15 or 20 years' time with whatever qualifications he ends up with, whatever interests he pursues, is there any chance that in the future you could forge a way where you work for one company for the majority of your career? Is is that even going to be an option? Because we know that today people like you have had a whole bunch of jobs. I'm the same. But if you want today, you can still kind of forge out a path in a large organization if you get a bit lucky and if that's what you desire. Is it even going to be an option for my son? Look, it's one of those questions where, you know, if you try to stay in an organization and never move, you just shut yourself off for opportunities. Mm. And even now, when you look at people who've been in organizations for maybe 20 years, they're then finding where, oh, okay, I'm getting to the end of the year, that 20 year mark. And the skill set that I've got in this organization, the organization is forcing me to change. So I always say to people, you'll come to a fork in the road in your career, which is when you start to look to shift and reshape, either through choice or conscription. Conscription meaning the organization has decided that you need to find a new job or choice. You've decided because of a whole raft of reasons, it's time for you to find a new job. I would suggest that for your five-year-old son, he's going to make lots of choices through his career, which Mm. will see him not wanting to stay in the one organization, even if that was a possibility. Because chances are in his in his years to come, as he goes through school and high school, he will see all around him people increasingly, as we're about to talk about, doing exactly that, changing careers and moving around, being very fluid about the way they work and the way they, they ply their trade. So it won't be so different or daunting or, or head scratching for him to get to the age of 17 or 20 or 22, begin his career with the understanding that he will, in fact, have so many changes. All right, so I get that, and it's really interesting. I feel a little nervous for him and for everyone else of his generation, but he'll probably handle it because, as I say, the world, he would have seen the world through those eyes. But let's now talk about the other side. Let's talk about people who might be your age or or my age, I think we're around the same age or a little older, who started their career in an environment where you could work for someone for a very long time, if not forever. And all of a sudden, under their feet, the sands have started to shift and they're shifting with increasing pace. What are those people? What are we supposed to make sense of it? First of all, what are the factors at play that mean we can no longer expect that kind of long-term relationship with an employer? The whole dynamic and the relationship between the employer and the employee has fundamentally changed. 
if you strip it down to its barest levels, employment is a value exchange. And I often say to people, this can sound really brutal and harsh, but it's real. You turn up to work, you deliver value in the service that you provide. In return, the organisation gives you value because they pay you. That's it. Now, the organisation might develop you, they might send you on learning programs, they might invest money in you so that you become a better leader or better in terms of what your craft is. But at the end of the day, they're doing that because they want you to be more productive, they want you to be more efficient. So when you work out that it's actually a value exchange and that it's up to you, it's your accountability to really manage your own career so that it is fit for the future of work, it means that you approach things differently, one, with a much more open mind, but two, you sit back and go, okay, well, if it's my accountability, what are the things that I need to do to make sure that I'm going to have a long-term sustainable career as opposed to sitting back and waiting for someone to manage my career for me? So what's changed there, Michelle? If you talk about employment being an exchange of value, which I get, accept that on a commercial level. But we have come from a history where employment was much more than that. Employment was all of these other things, a job for life, a job for your children if they chose to come and work for this organization. Employment hasn't always simply been an exchange of value. So what then has changed in society? To me, it's a whole raft of factors. So yes, technology has driven a lot of change in terms of the ability for people to work flexibly and also for employers to be able to source resources from across the globe. So it's a much more fluid and transient workforce, but it also means that each individual needs to really understand what their skill set is because people can buy those skills from anywhere around the world and really being conscious of what's my value and also what's my market rate. So over the years, because employers have, you know, most of them, if you think, you know, big chunks of the organisations that we're looking at, they're either accountable to shareholders or there's budget cuts, you know, even if they're um, government institutions, organisations have had to go through numerous iterations of change to one, stay competitive, but to two, keep pace with the changes that are required in society and also often because they're either chasing profit or they've had their budgets cut. And so when you get that constant sense of the organisation is shifting all the time and I don't know whether my job is safe or how long it's going to be safe for, it does start to change the nature of the relationship. Whereas, you know, if I look at my father's career, he had what was called tenure, which meant When he got his first job at the university, he could move his way up through the ranks and he could get promoted. But he had tenure, which meant he had a job for life. He was in his contract. So, which is a very different arrangement to now where you've got lots of organisations which have got big chunks of their workforce as contractors or short-term labour. Yes, you still have a portion of the workforce that is in full-time employment, but a lot of the growth in employment figures at the moment is actually in part-time work, not in full-time work. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. You speak quite passionately at the beginning of your book about how empowering this is for us as individuals to start to see our our career is as fluid with many options uh, rather than locked down in the old way with that old exchange. 
and that's true. I feel empowered by it and I'm excited by it. I'm excited about the way it'll continue to evolve and being able to work remotely and have all of those options. It's terrific. But I'm not a low-skilled worker. I imagine that everything that you're saying is really only true for people who have either a lot of experience and, and a lot to offer in that way, or people who are highly skilled or highly educated. Because if I'm a low-skilled or a no-skill worker and I'm competing against everyone else, including people from overseas, this new paradigm doesn't seem so exciting to me anymore. I, I want a little bit of the the security of a a longer-term relationship with my employer because I am so easily replaced. Oh, look, I absolutely agree with you in that for some people and for, you know, even for people who would be considering themselves highly skilled, they will find this new paradigm challenging and in some places scary. My premise is, though, that's not going to stop it happening. Mm. And so this is where we're heading. And rather than go, I'm too scared, I don't know what to do, I'm going to not do anything, get on the front foot and work out what you can do about it. Because the more you think ahead, the more you plan, the better you are able to cope with the changes that are going on around you. And there's no doubt that there will be some people in society who need more support than other people in coping with what these changes mean, which means, you know, there's that sort of whole of society approach. And I'm firmly come from the belief that I want a society and live in a society where people are cared for. And that means providing support to people be it through you know, education support and reskilling and retooling so that as technology changes and therefore a lot of the process-based industries become automated, people there have options. But it does mean that they need to start early rather than sitting back and waiting for it to happen to them. They start to think about, well, what's this future of work looking like and what do I need to do about it? Okay, Michelle, so I'm, I'm mid-career I may have had the typical 90s, 2000s, 2000s and somethings career up to now. I might have changed jobs a few times. I might even be into my second career, but I'm certainly not living this this fluid future that that you imagine and that seems so clearly on its way. How do I start the process? What are the steps that I need to take to make sure that I'm prepared for the changes and that I can be on the front foot and proactive rather than a victim of these changes and having it really affect me negatively? Yeah. The first thing is to really remember that at the end of the day, you can't future-proof your job, but you can future-proof your career. Jobs have always come and gone. Jobs have always changed. So none of that is new. And there's a lot of scary stats out there. You know, in the last couple of years, there's been all these stats around, oh, you know, in the next five years, 40% of roles across the country are going to be automated. Mm. And so it's really easy to hear that and go, oh, my, you know, wow, what's going to happen to me? I often said to people, one of the best reports that came out a couple of years ago was the McKinsey report in early 2017, where they did global research and they looked across the world and they said, out of all of the industries and occupations and with the current available technology, What's that going to mean for jobs? And with current available technology, their research shows that only 5% of jobs can be fully automated. Mm. But there's about 60% of jobs that can have to 30% of the role automated. So I often say to people, that means aspects of your role will change. You know, for example, if you're a paralegal already, 
a lot of the work that you do, which used to be research-based, is now done by artificial intelligence. We've got robots at a hospital in Perth dispensing drugs. There's robots in life insurance companies in Japan that do all of the calculations of insurance payouts. So understanding how your role and your industry and therefore your career is changing is really important. But it's important to also do that in the context of your life because at the end of the day, your career is part of your life. And so understanding the choices and the risks that you're willing to take on and also how much you're willing to learn to support your career is really important because getting on the front foot is understand the environment, work out what it means for me, and therefore what I'm going to be prepared to do about it. So that, that's, a re- that's a really interesting place to begin because so many of us do hear those stats and, and or, or numbers around the idea of being replaced by robots and artificial intelligence. Your numbers there are a little bit more, a little bit gentler than, than others I've heard where a very few jobs will be fully automated, but a lot of jobs will be impacted by automation and robotics and, and IA. But what can I do about that now? I can imagine that, yeah, sure. Yeah, I can see chunks of my work that could be automated. So what what do I do next? If I say to myself, okay, I'm a, I'm a professional or I'm someone in a professional industry with an X amount of experience, I feel comfortable, but I but I know I should get on the front foot. I, I think some of my my job might be taken over in into the future, but who knows when? I mean, we've we've been talking about this for ages and the guy in the cubicle next to me is still there, so it's not coming yet. What do I do then? Part of it is falling in love with learning. What I've seen sort of countless times through my career are people who get to a certain point and it's almost like they stop learning. They go, well, this is my job. I don't need to learn anymore. I'm not interested in learning, so that's it. Unless the organisation is going to force me to go on some training program, I'm not interested. Whereas if you can look to the left and to the right of your you know, functional expertise or technical expertise or your profession and see what's happening on the edges, because when you start to look at what's happening on the edges, that can help you shape and evolve where your career is going. And it is also recognising that you can't necessarily plan everything, but you can ready yourself emotionally for it. So, you know, I look at myself as an example. When I left corporate to start this five years ago, I didn't really have a clear plan as to what this looked like. I just knew that I had finished with my time in corporate and I was ready to do something else because my career drivers we're really around autonomy and challenge and loving learning. And so this became a natural segue. But one, I didn't know whether I'd be any good at it and be successful. And two, I really didn't have a shape for what the business was going to be, the shape of business evolved. And so often what we look for in a career is this very clear cut. I'm at here and I want to get to here and I hear all the steps to get there. And sometimes when you're looking into the future, you can't plan that in such a linear way, because you're right, you're not going to know exactly what the future is holding. But if you maintain a good network, if you keep highly skilled and in touch with what's happening around you and in your industry and your profession, it means you're far better prepared for what those changes mean. All right. So igniting my love of learning, that, that's that's the beginning. And, and so asking myself, what do I learn? I look at the edges of my industry and I think, okay, where, where's all this headed? And how can I inject myself towards those fringes that will one day become the norm for my industry? That's great. That makes sense. Give us an example of that, Michelle, of someone that you've worked with who has done exactly that 
they've looked to the the fringes of their industry and started to almost predict the future and place themselves in the middle of that future. So if I look at some people who I've worked with when they've been exiting corporate, so that once again, you know, they've made a similar position. They've been in corporate for a number of years and they've said, for me to go back into another corporate role, I feel like I'm done. I'm ready for that next level. And often it's because they're looking for more flexibility or they're looking for more autonomy. And what they're doing as they're going through that is they're getting really clear around their value proposition and they're narrowing where their expertise lies. And as they're narrowing their expertise, they're getting really clear around where is my profession changing and how are the skills that I've got going to be able to help that profession through a different lens? Because I'm now actually doing it from the almost the outside looking in to an organisation rather than within an organisation. And I also come from the philosophy that no learning is wasted. And so often what we do is we get very clinical with learning and we say, well, I have to learn X, Y, and Z. And I go, well, find the learning that you're interested in because you actually never quite know where that learning is going to take you. And there's these wonderful things called MOOCs, so Mass Online Open Courses. They're run by some of the world's best universities. So I've done courses through Berkeley, Harvard, Yale. Haven't cost me a cent. Fantastic. And so there's sites such as edX, Udemy, Open to Learning, Coursera. And so I say to people, if you're interested in coding, go and do a course on coding. You don't have to learn something with the expectation it's going to lead to something. Because what you're doing is you're learning, not sure where it's going to take you. Whereas at the moment, what we often do is we go, well, I need to become a coach. So I'll go and get certified as a coach. Or I need to understand how to do X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to go and learn that particular technical skill. As opposed to saying, actually, I'm just interested in learning. And so what I'm going to do is learn anything that I think is actually interesting. And when you do that, it just opens your field of view rather than taking a really narrow view of where I learn. And for some people, this will be a real challenge because there are some people who find learning a chore. And so it's flipping your mindset and going, you know, taking that real growth mindset approach to learning and being curious about things. And I often say to people, you have to go and do learning that you think is interesting because if you're not interested in it, it's really hard to sustain the stamina to keep going. It's a really good point that you make that it's not about going to get your next qualification or your next ticket or your next whatever it might be that, that used to be that direct line to the next role. What you're advocating is just keep in the habit of learning. Go and learn new stuff and see where that leads because just the process of engaging with that topic will give you new thoughts and new directions, probably new networks and new relationships, and that will keep you in the game. So so you, you, what you're saying is that process of active learning is at the core of making sure that you survive into the future. Absolutely. And there's a guy who does some really interesting blogging. He does a lot of stuff around mental models called Michael Simons, and he talks about polymath. And he said, you know, some of the best experts in the world are the people who blend biology with history, economics with biology. And so you get these fusion of sort of different areas. So rather than just being, you know, I'm an expert in computer coding or I'm an expert in HR or I'm an expert in operations or I'm a really good supervisor, you look at things through multiple different lenses and 
when you're focusing on learning that you find interesting, it just doesn't, it's far less hard. And if you go back to your school days and, you know, even when you were going through school and you were forced to learn science or maths or do things that you didn't find interesting, it's very hard to learn and it's very hard for the brain to remember things if we're not interested in it. And when you're interested, when you're generating your own insights, it's much easier for the brain to go, I'm going to make some meaning out of this because I can see its relevance to me and to what I want to do. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. So what are the dangers in this? That's a really nice path. I'm actually quite inspired by that. Just the, the, the putting learning at the center of my behavior will, will help me see that path forward. What are the dangers of that? What, what, do I, what else do I need to be aware of as I go about engaging in this future? Well, I certainly don't think learning is dangerous. I think the challenge with learning is when we learn to rote learn and we don't learn to think and analyze. And one of the critical competencies into the future is going to be problem solving. And so, you know, even if you go back to early kind of schooling, there was a sense that we learned through rote as opposed to going, well, let's learn to inquire and let's learn to challenge rather than taking this piece of information that I've been given as on face value and see it as fact. It's good to challenge. But to your point around what is another element that becomes really important, and it's something that we're, you know, we've been told for years, and it's your network. And I often say to people, you know, networking kind of has that really swami almost it's like a dirty word. Oh, and, you know, and particularly I often get women who say to me, oh, I hate networking. And I often, let's slip it on its head. Really, networking is just building relationships. And if you don't like networking, it's often because rather than focusing on the other person, you're not necessarily focusing, focusing more on you. Whereas at the end of the day, networking is about building deep and lasting relationships. But the deeper and broader your network, the more you're going to understand the opportunities that are available and also get the taps on the shoulder to be able to move laterally either across industries or across professions. So let's say I've, I, I like that advice and, and actually that was our first conversation was all about networking. So let's say I've, I've found this new passion. I've looked to the fringes of my industry and I've started to educate myself and school myself in a, in a really dynamic way. It's not about a, a, my next um, postgraduate diploma. It's not about a certificate. It's just about in this growth of knowledge. Say I start to tap into where I think my industry is headed or I start to blend my old discipline with something else in a really unique and and modern way, what's my next step? Because the world can't be full of consultants and professional service providers running their own shop, I'm guessing, or maybe that is the future. Well, it's interesting because if you look at some of the um, you know, roles of the future, you know, there's no doubt, you know, talking about things like nanomedics and all those sort of really kind of deep experts in the medical field that's going to deal with, you know, molecular biology and healing people at that kind of molecular level. So it's kind of going to all new levels. Service industries, you know, service industries is absolutely huge, still huge growth in service industries. But they're talking about that we're going to have people who specialize in helping you build your brand. And so you would not want the whole workforce run by consultants because I think that would be a really interesting conundrum that we would be facing. 
But as we move to a far more flexible workforce where less and less people are employed full-time in organisations, people are going to need to feel comfortable to package up their skill set and sell that skill set to multiple different people. So when we think of the typical consultant, we think of you know, the big consulting firms that go into organisations to find a problem, fix a problem, come up with a series of recommendations and potentially execute and implement that solution. Whereas when you think about a flexible workforce where what you might be doing is going, here's a problem, here's a project that we need to fix and we are just going to bring people on board for that particular project. And once that project is done, that workforce will be disbanded. And so in that type of environment, typically those people are consultants like contractors, but it's a very different model to the bringing in a whole sort of contingent workforce from one of the big consulting firms. In the, you know, the earlier example, there's going to be someone in the organisation who is actually working out who those experts are that you're going to need to bring together. And there's a consulting organisation. Well, I don't even know whether consulting organisation is the right way to call it, but there's a group in um, that got released last year called Expert 360. And one of the things that they do is they bring people together for particular projects. So they're like a resourcing pool that you can go to as an organisation to go, here's my problem, I want you guys to help resource it up. And they have this massive sort of pool of contractors um, you know, so it's a bit like a freelancer site where people can be on it and they're registered and they're vetted and all that kind of stuff. And the organisation can say, I'm going to that, you know, Expert 360 to actually provide my resourcing for this particular project. So, Michelle, you're obviously very buoyed by this. You're, you're enthusiastic about the future. You see a, at least a theoretical or a philosophical way forward for everybody into the future. But is there anybody... Or is there any type of industry or any type of worker who you are glad you're not going into this brave new world of employment? What kind of sectors or what type of employees do you look at and you think the future is going to be tough for you in this reality? And look, I guess the reason why I take the optimistic stance is it's happening. Hmm. So rather than get pessimistic about it, because it's very easy, you know, we are hardwired as humans to immediately go to the negative. It's very easy to get into that and then get into the vortex of the negativity as opposed to go, well, this is happening. Let's be real about it and let's face into it. So Mm. I'm coming through from that perspective. I'm not doing this with rose-coloured glasses saying, hey, this is going to be awesome for everybody because Mm. if you look through history, there is no doubt as economies and societies change, some people come out of it really well and there are other people who don't, which is why it's important as a society to actually care for the people who are going to find this challenging. Mm. If you are in highly process-based roles, so anything that can be fully automated, um, and where you were talking before about some lower-skilled workers, but then there is no doubt that it, it can be harder. Um, you know, there's projections around, you know, as we move to driverless cars, we're going to need less transport operators. You won't necessarily need train drivers. So... If you look at even in professions, as I was saying before, with lawyers, the way lawyers work yeah, and the type of work that they are doing will be changing. So for me, I focused less on the industry and more on the attitude of the people in those industries because if you're the sort of person who has a very fixed mindset and are very closed off to the opportunities and find change really hard, 
irrespective of how heavily impacted your industry is, you are, you're going to find this harder than somebody else who has a very a high growth mindset. They're willing to learn. They're willing to experiment. They're willing to try things and have a go. And they're also thinking into the future around what might be coming so that they're getting themselves prepared for it. One of the points you make well in your book is around leadership. And and you talk about the fact that you've essentially, we need to become our own leader. When in the past, an organization may have paid to develop us and, and grow us a, as a person, when leader, our, our old leaders, the old style of leadership might have seen it as their role to develop you through your career and give you the skills to the point where you might outgrow them and their team. But you say that's not going to be the way of the future and we essentially have to take the bull by the horns ourselves and be our own leader. You do. And one of the byproducts or the benefits of that is when you're the leader of your career, when you see yourself in charge of your career, you less play the role of victim because it's less about what someone can do to you and more about what you can do for yourself. And you don't sit back and go, it's someone else's accountability to take care of my career. It's my accountability. And so, you know, and this is different for everybody. Obviously, everyone has different financial circumstances. But, you know, putting aside a little pool of money every year to learn, to buy books. And that's why I often say to people as well, there is so much out there that is free that you don't need to pay for, and yet people aren't accessing it. And I remember, you know, this was a number of years ago, there was an organisation um, that I was connected with. And as part of their you know, support for employees, everybody got a certain amount of money every year to spend on training. And, you know, I'm the kind of nerd, so I would have spent every cent, you know, if the organisation had allocated me, you know, a couple of thousand dollars or whatever it was, I would have spent all of that on my learning. And the person in HR said to me, you know, Michelle, really only about 20% of employees, max, actually access any of the money. Mm, wow. And, wow. I, and I remember That's thinking- That's passive, I isn't thinking, it? Oh, I remember thinking, That's nuts. Yeah. You know, here's the organisation saying, here's some money. We're going to give to you. You choose how you want to learn and what you want to learn. And, you know, and providing it's not, you know, potentially learning how to belly dance or something that has nothing to do with um, with the organization, they would pay for it. Wow. And so I, st- I think there's still a lot of people out there. And that probably was part of the desire with the book because I often had people who would say to me, oh, Michelle, you seem so happy. You know, you've got this amazing career. And then I had, you know, other friends of mine who said to me, oh, my God, Michelle, your career terrifies me. You've just made these seemingly random jumps into the unknown. And I thought, well, actually, they're not random. I've always thought about what I've done, but I've been, never been scared of failure and I've never been scared of hard work. And often, you know, some people look for the easy way out. And in the future, if you look for the easy way out, you may find that you get your fingers burned and it's, you know, you therefore taking care of your career nurturing your career just as you were told to nurture you know our health you know the two are so closely connected all the research shows that when people um you know either work in an environment that's not healthy for them it translates into you know potentially mental health issues you know and stress and all kinds of things but there's a huge correlation between our satisfaction in the work that we do and how satisfied we are in our lives and so the book was not just about, hey, the world of work is changing. It was also saying to people, even if you're, you know, the industry you're in isn't really changing all that much, but you don't like it, get out. Find something that you like doing. 
And I don't fall into the trap of going, you're going to love your job every minute of every day because I think that's a total myth and you can't have it all. Life just doesn't work like that. Everything in life's a trade-off, but you can make choices. And when you really sit down and look at your career and understand your career in the context of your life and your purpose and what you want to do and where you want to get, it then becomes easier to make those choices. And, you know, my purpose will be different to yours, which will be different to your next door neighbours, which will be different to your colleagues at work. And it doesn't mean anybody's purpose is better than anybody else's. And your purpose doesn't even need to be one of those massive altruistic noble purposes. I often think people think, oh, I can't tell anyone my purpose. I need to have something that's, you know, this amazing purpose. Your purpose can be as simple as I want to raise a happy, healthy family. And that's a really legitimate purpose. And when you understand what that purpose is, it then becomes easier to make the choices you need to make with your career because it's going to set some of those parameters for the decisions that you want to make. So clarify your purpose, be proactive, pursue education, ignite your love of learning and see where it all takes you. Michelle Gibbings, that sounds terrific. I think that's a really nice place to leave it. Thanks so much for joining me again on the Team Guru podcast. My pleasure. And I hope I get invited back when I do book three. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) We would need to complete the set. Exactly. I'm turning into a trilogy. (laughs) Good on you, Michelle. Pleasure. And that was Michelle Gibbings. It's a fascinating topic, isn't it? So where is it all heading for you? Are you thriving or battling to survive? What about the people you love, your children? Do they have the skills and mindset that will help them navigate and make sense of the working landscape they'll experience through their careers? As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Michelle on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website, that's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. <music>